The scripture reading today is from James chapter 2. You can find it on page 1196 in your pew Bible. We're going to be reading from James 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Support, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But have you insulted the poor? It, it is, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over justice, over judgment. This is the word of God. Thanks, Terry. <laughs> Grateful for that. Okay, so last week, uh, if you were here, Eric Chang delivered the, the message, and he spoke on two little verses in James, uh, verse 26 and 27. You know, true religion is this. And religion as a word kind of gets a bad rap today in, in our, our context. Understandably, I think most people, when you hear the word religion, you think of institutions or something that people are uh, delivering on you that you have to do, maybe, maybe a form of, of legalism or something like that. But James doesn't hesitate to use the word, and then he defines it. He defines what it looks like. Um, True religion is being compassionate. Uh, true religion is pursuing personal holiness. And, you know, we want to obviously understand that in the context of relationship. Uh, but religion, if you look at the Latin version of that, religare, just means to bind yourself to something. We all are religious. We all bind ourselves to something. Some people have the religion of, well, football or basketball or money, or whatever the case may be. You can fill in a lot of blanks there as well. We're religious people. We were created to attach ourselves to something. And so James says, since we're all religious, here's what true religion looks like. Here's what you're supposed to bind yourself to, being compassionate, pursuing personal holiness. That was a little ironic that Last week, as we went to St. Louis, the church we were working alongside there is very active in its community. They have a handful of ministries. One 
is coming alongside widows primarily that they're ministering to. So we felt very religious last week because we were helping widows while Eric was preaching on James 1, 26 to 27 about what true religion is like. And you know, it feels kind of good when you do that. I asked the, the crew that went, we had 11 of us, uh, just uh, two people that felt like a uh, well, there were people who were old, older than 18 as well, so maybe more than two adults. But when we asked for you know, feedback on the trip, uh, this is what people said. The, the best part was raking leaves and praying with Miss Mary. Uh, we raked the equivalent of 10 truckloads of leaves for this, this lady. Uh, some of them had been there for, for months and months and months, and that was great. For us to do, I'd, uh, Mrs. Clay was a really sweet lady, I was really touched when she said that if we ever needed someone to call or text for her for prayer to hit her up. <laughs> so the youth version there. And it was really neat. It's, it was this, this lady who said, if you ever need someone to pray for you, here's my number call. Text me and I will pray for you, painting a wheelchair ramp. My favorite part of the trip was seeing how happy Mrs. Clay was when we helped her out. Everybody was talking about that being their favorite part of the trip, just sitting down and helping somebody else, as particularly somebody who can't help because of their age. That, there's something about that, isn't there? I mean, true religion, uh, which is grounded in a relationship, of course. There's a reason why you feel good <laughs> when you do that. It's how God's designed you to give yourself to others as, as well. And of course it feels better when people are saying, thank you, sweet little thing, you know, and that kind of stuff. It's harder when people don't do that, obviously. Uh, but nonetheless, James says, this is what true religion looks like. Just two verses. In the next section we looked at that Terry read so beautifully, uh, in, in the 13 verses of James chapter 2. So a bigger section, and there's a lot happening here, but really it boils down into two main points that we can take away. And the first is this, don't show favoritism. I mean, that's very clear. The second that we'll take a look at is do speak and act according to the law that gives freedom. So there's a do and a don't, but first the don't, the leveling power of the gospel. The first thing he says in these, verse, uh, these 11 verses is don't show favoritism. And here's why, as he begins to unpack it, in verse 1, he says, favoritism actually runs counter to the gospel. Now look what he says in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. So James' appeal to these 12 tribes that have been scattered is that they are believers in Jesus Christ, the glorious Jesus Christ, and that is why you cannot show favoritism. When I say it runs counter to the gospel, I mean the message of Jesus that influences every aspect of our lives. The appeal here is to believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. How did Christ display his glory? And if you look at the book of John and John chapter 1, we read that the Bible tells us God became flesh. He became man. I mean, it's really kind of an astounding concept. If you come from uh, from a culture that's never heard that before. That's, that's amazing. And the Bible says God himself took on flesh in Jesus, his son, from all eternity, condescended, that is, he became man. 
He was not man before. He became, in space and time, man. And in John chapter 1, when he comes and dwells among us, he says, we have beheld his glory. That's how God demonstrates his glory, by becoming man. In his, what we call his humiliation, not only in living as a man, but ultimately dying on a cross, being obedient, taking this form of a servant, being made in human appearance, he became a man, and he died on the cross. And that's why God exalts him to the highest place. That's his glory, is being made humble and becoming low. That's what we call the incarnation. So Jesus humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, that's the glory of the gospel. So there's the appeal. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, that would be the bells and whistles going out. This person who humbled himself then, you cannot show favoritism. The appeal is to the leveling ground, as I call it here, of the gospel. You know, the Apostle Paul who planted lots of churches, he's somebody, he's mentioned a lot in churches for centuries, right? Paul, Paul, Paul. And even in his day, he had every reason to be proud about who he was. He had all the accolades, and some of you know this. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the right tribe. Everything in that day that said you were somebody of value, he had. And he says, as he's writing to the church in Philippi, all that stuff is meaningless when you compare it to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. So if I'm going to boast, if I'm going to have glory in something, it's in the cross of Christ. Because that's where my true value, my true identity, my true worth exists. And Paul, Paul believed that wholeheartedly and spent his whole life trying to get other people to see that. You are placing your value and your measure of your worth in a wrong thing. It's in Christ alone. It's a leveling ground. Because now all of my accomplishments and my worth and my value that I found wrapped up in what I accomplished, it really doesn't matter when I compare it to that. And that seeps into the church. We know this because he spends 11 verses telling them you're favoring people. And you can't do that. And my appeal is because Christ himself is the one who levels all of us. I mean, Paul would say this, and you're probably familiar with this verse too, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Every single one of those categories in the time when Paul was writing it would be categories where people would have favor over others. Uh, you know, one of the great prayers of the Jewish rabbis is, I'm, I'm glad you didn't make me a Gentile. I'm glad you didn't make me a woman. Right? There were two things because they had all rights and privileges and status as they walk around just by virtue of being a male Jew. They had privilege in, in their society. They, that just what exa- how it happened. And Paul says none of that mattered. Christ has leveled all that ground because we are united in Christ and now our identity is primarily in him. Now, this doesn't take away those distinctions. You might still be male or female or Jew or Gentile, but the important thing is we're all one in Christ. With respect to dignity and value and worth, the gospel levels the ground. The idea of favoritism is completely washed away in the gospel, or it ought to be. You know, Peter, you probably heard of him if you're a churchgoer as well. He was very, very Jewish. He and James, kind of the pillars of the Jewish church. And Peter is a big part of the expansion of the New Testament church. And he was very, very much identified as somebody who was of the Jewish culture. In everything, even in the way he ate. So he only ate 
kosher food. He only ate food that the Old Testament had said was clean. That was part of how he identified himself as, in some respects, not just one of God's people, but as, for them, superior to other cultures around them. You might be familiar with the time when he went up uh, on, the, on the top of a roof. To, he was hungry and some people were preparing food and he went to pray and then this vision appears three times to him with this sheet that comes down and it's filled with all kinds of unclean animals. And he's told to kill and to eat those animals. So this is a little bit like you're at Chipotle and you're a lifelong vegetarian and you're proud of your status. You know, it defines who you are. And you're going to a Chipotle for some, some vegetarian stuff or whatever, and you hear God say, put on the carnitas and the barbacoa and the chicken. Forsake the sofritas, that tofu stuff. Just don't do it anymore, right? You are all going to have a, uh, a bowl of meat. And your whole life you have rejected that. And you've prided yourself in it. And he just said, Get, put three pounds of meat. Just keep telling them to put it on there, right? And you say, no way. And then another time, order the meat. No. A third time, order the meat, right? And you do, so you, you do it. You're, you're obedient. Well, what, what's God saying? It's, it's kind of confusing. And Peter's confused when he hears a knock on the door. Some people say, hey, look, this guy Cornelius, he's a Gentile. He was told to ask for this guy named Peter to come on over to his house. And Peter says, okay, that's me. I'll go. He goes over and they discover that their God has done a work in there and he's opened up these people's hearts and they want to know about the God of the Bible. They want to follow him. And they, they say, tell us this thing we call the gospel and they receive it gladly. And he says, baptize our whole household. We're in. Let's do this thing. And yet Cornelius is a non-Jew. And Peter there, as he's grappling with it, and he sees what's happening, says in Acts 10, 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation. He's shattering their categories because they've been the favored people. And now he says, you've missed the point. It's my goodness and my grace to all people. And this gospel is for everybody it's the great leveling ground. You know, how do we get from one place to the other? That's a little difficult. I think some of it takes some hard introspection. Some of us are completely unaware, self-included, of where we're walking out and favoring other people for whatever reason, for whatever reason it might be. Usually we're blind to it. So either it takes some serious introspection where you're talking with God and he says, hey, Stop it. You're showing favoritism to others, kind of like Peter did. Or it takes somebody from the outside coming in and looking at you and saying, that's not right. You're showing favoritism. I've had this happen to me as well before. And where somebody just said, you are not doing, you are doing something that's showing favoritism. And, you know, the motive of my heart, I don't think, was to show it. But he was, this person was right in confronting me. Like, you're right. I am. And I need to be open to that. And this, this is what happens, people speaking in. This is not right. And God doesn't show favoritism. So you can't if you're a believer in Christ. That's what he said. It's pretty clear here. 
My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. And although the text here, the issue is not primarily ethnic, it's economic. James says behind any sort of favoritism, whatever it might be, there's wrong thinking involved. That's what he says. Not only does it run counter to the gospel, but it has its roots in evil thinking. You know, the Bible is not very sanitized. It doesn't say, you know, you're, you're, you're a little off on your thinking here. It says, your thinking's evil, <laughs> right? It's, it's not just wrong. It's actually satanic. It's evil. It's kind of getting you where it hurts, but here's what he says. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Treating people differently based on external appearances is a product of evil thinking. There's something beneath the surface that needs to be corrected and challenged. I mean, you know the iceberg illustration. You can only see so much of an iceberg and 90-something percents under the waters. James is saying, we're dealing with the 90% here. You're acting this way, but there's wrong thinking underneath that needs to be addressed, and it's evil. You cannot do this. If you really understand the gospel... It's not enough to say treat all people with equal dignity. It takes some reflection to ask what are the reasons why we might treat people differently? Is it our own sense of superiority? Or maybe our desire for personal advancement? I mean, if this is in the context of a church meeting or taking up an offering, we want the rich people to feel pretty good about being here, right? We want to say things that are going to make them give more. And avoid the things that might cause controversy. Even if it's gospel-centered. And James says that's wrong. You don't have that luxury. You have to treat everybody in a way that dignifies all of them. He's not trying to say tear down a rich person. And he's already said before the poor have a high status. And God, we need to lift those up that the world beats down. And sometimes the world lifts people that need to be beaten down. Because they're trusting in themselves, you see. They're not understanding the gospel. It takes wisdom, obviously, but there's an actual situation. He's not only writing to one church, the 12 tribes scattered throughout. This is a worldwide problem that I'm sure is limited only to the time when James is writing it and not to today because the Bible is irrelevant today. <laughs> I mean, we see this happening all throughout history, right? Some of you are familiar with William Booth. He's founder of the Salvation Army. Um, this was written, you know, this is 2,000 years ago, but uh, in, in Booth's day, just a couple hundred years uh, ago, um, part of the Broad Street Congregation, this is a, from an entry in the general next to God, Richard Collier in his history of the Salvation Army writes, those who made part of the Broad Street Congregation never forgot that electric Sunday in 18. 46, the Reverend Samuel Dunn seated comfortably on his red plush throne, a concord of voices swelling into the evening's fourth hymn, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die, and the chapel's outer door suddenly shattered open, 
In its wake came a shuffling, shabby contingent of men and women wilting nervously under the stony stairs of the mill manager, the shopkeepers, and their well-dressed wives. In the rear, a fire with zeal marched willful Will Booth, blocking the efforts of the more reluctant to turn back. I mean, people didn't want to come in. They'd embraced Christ, and they were coming to public worship, but they were scared to enter because they were being harshly judged by the wealthy who were already present. To his dismay, the Reverend Dunn saw that the young Booth was actually ushering his charges, none of whose clothes would have raised five shillings in his own pawn shop, into the very best seats, pew holders' seats, facing the pulpit, whose occupants piled the collection plate with glinting silver. This was unprecedented. For the poor, if they came to chapel, entered by another door, to be segregated on benches without backs or cushions, Behind a partition which screened off the pulpit, here, though the service was audible, they could not see, nor could they be seen. R. Kent Hughes suggests that money, economics, is the principal medium for discrimination. Christians tend to listen more intently to the prosperous man, to defer to his wishes, to place him in positions of leadership. If he can run the bank, we think he can lead the church. I don't know how many of you have been part of church leadership before. There's a lot of people who are very capable in the business world who don't make good church leaders. There's a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church that we read as uh, a leadership team just a couple of years ago. And the basic premise there, Peter Scazzaro, who pastors a church in Queens, uh, New York, uh, is that as the leaders go, so goes the church. And he he argues that in our models of discipleship, okay, we tend to neglect our own kind of emotional maturity and instead place emphasis maybe on how well you know the Bible or how good uh, your leadership skills are out in the community, especially in business. So what you might have is a bunch of people around the table offering leadership to the church who really aren't very healthy individuals. They may be successful, but they're not healthy. And he unpacks that quite a bit. I've seen that as well. The, the presumption that because maybe you're not great in business, you might not be a good church leader. Well, how does that seem to square with the Bible? I mean, especially in this passage here. Because he doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say that, oh, I'm sorry, I'll skip that verse, that favoritism tends to beat down Tend to beat down those God exalts and exalt those who beat you down. It's kind of ironic, but this is what he says. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. It's ironic because the gospel has flourished more historically among the poor than, than the wealthy. Uh, and yet there's a temptation in the church to exalt the wealthy. And that, that's, what, that's what the world does. I mean, Jesus makes it clear. And that was the verse that I said, that I put up here too. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And that is the whole gospel again, saying there is a 
richness even in poverty that we talked about before poverty is not good we need to seek to eradicate it but there's something about not being dependent on yourself that makes you more open to being dependent on God and there's something about wealth that rips you away from the sense of dependence on God because you can take care of yourself that's the danger the subtlety of it which I think is why Paul and others say then be generous if you have much and if you want to look what generosity looks like, Jesus says, look at the poor widow who gives almost all she has. So there's that interplay here. He's not saying one is better than the other, but there is a posture of humility naturally that comes about from poverty that in the church we should not disdain, but rather exalt. Ironically, he says, the reverse is often true. We treat those with more as better and they're the very people with power and influence that let that power and influence corrupt. And it happens at a very young age. Why are people popular in school? Is it because of their character? I mean, would you say that most people who fit in the popular scheme of things, I know those of you who are even in your 80s, you can remember <laughs> popularity in school. It starts early. What's usually the measure for popularity? Typically. Looks, yeah, maybe some success. You know, if you're great at chess, you're popular, right? No. If, you, if, you're, if you're great at sports, you can be popular. But especially if you're attractive. And, and a lot of people spend a lot of time wanting to be friends with the popular, or at least noticed by the popular people. What, in your experience, is the general characteristic of a popular person? Are they kind-hearted and, and gentle and pouring themselves out for others. No, they're, they're, they're jerks. They're mean. So why in the world are we attracted to these people? <laughs> what is it about them that we want to be like? Isn't it weird how there's an external appearance we desire to be liked by somebody who is liked by others, even if they're mean to us? It starts early. And that's the law of the sin nature. That's the law of the world around us, too, it's deceptive. Even James has already talked about this. It's kind of, I want, spend some time thinking about that. Why do I want, even, what's happening underneath that? What's the thinking that's wrong about that? What's the desire of the heart that's misguided here? Where am I feeding into the favoritism idea? I mean, most people with power and influence don't use it wisely. So if you have it, beware. That's what Paul's saying. That's what James is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not that it's bad. It's just it's dangerous sometimes. And it's not that just if you're, you know, somebody who's terribly unpopular, you're a great person. You can be mean too. But Jesus is always driving for the heart. I mean, he had to, Paul had to remind him too. These, these followers that he had as well, the, the churches, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. If you have everything and you add God, sometimes it's a very little add-on. If you had nothing, Adam, it's huge. So you need to remind you because I think these people, maybe you start getting some followers and some people are speaking well of you and you start thinking, oh, it's about me again. 
And we, the offertory said it's all because of Christ. We need to be stripped of that again and again. And favoritism ironically beats down the God exalts and exalt those who beat you down. More than that, verses 8 through 11, favoritism breaks the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Now, what James is doing here is he's, for these seven verses said, don't, 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 no, no, no. Now he's kind of shifting to, hey, here's something positive you can do. And he's going to do it in verse 12 more, but before he can get there, he goes back to the favoritism issue and shows you can't be thinking this way. But on the plus side, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, the whole Bible summed up in two things. Love God, love others. There it is. It's all details from there. And we need to learn what that means, right? But that's it. Sometimes people forget about those two things because they're spending so much time on the details. But this is it. Love God, love others. If you do that, okay, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. So he said, this is a serious issue. You're thinking evil thoughts and you're sinning. And guess what? If you sin at one part, you're guilty of breaking all of it. You sin, you're convicted by the law's lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law, you're doing everything right, but just one little point, then you're guilty of breaking all of it. Because the, the sentence is the same. You're guilty. Death in God's economy. Separation from God. He who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And Jesus unpacks more. It's an issue of the heart. So we're all condemned this morning. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. He says break one part, you break all of it as well. And it's a great verse to show that we're all on the hook, hook for giving an account. Stumble at one point, one time ever. You're guilty of breaking it all. So that's why we all need a savior the Bible says, no matter who you are. But if you show favoritism, you're not keeping one of the most basic laws given by the entirety of the Bible. Love God, that's vertical. Love others, that's horizontal. So are there opportunities that exist, that exist to show this kind of love and to see what happens even as a result? There's a, a book, uh, Through the Valley of Kwai, that was written, and uh, this, this man who wrote it was talking about somebody who actually lived by this law when they were in uh, a prisoner of war. Uh, here's what he says. When the royal laws lived, marvelous things happened horizontally and vertically. Ernest Gordon, Ernest Gordon, who wrote this book, tells of the miraculous transformation that took place among the Allied prisoners in a Japanese concentration camp in 1943. In 1942, the camp was a sea of mud and filth, the scene of grueling labor and brutal treatment. There was hardly any food, and the law that pervaded the whole camp was the law of the jungle, every man for himself. You're just trying to survive, right? Twelve months later, the, gr the ground of the camp was cleaned and clear. The bamboo bed slats had been debugged, Green boughs had been used to rebuild the huts. And on Christmas morning, 2,000 men were at worship. What had happened in that year? During the year, a prisoner had shared his last crumb of food with another man who was also in desperate need. And then he died. Among his belongings, they found a Bible. 
Some who witnessed his ultimate act of love wondered, could that Bible be the secret of willingness to give sacrificially to others? One by one, the prisoners began to read it, and soon the Spirit of God began to grip their hearts and change their lives. And in a period of less than 12 months, there was a spiritual and moral revolution within that camp. The royal law lived out, had done its work. A crumb of bread, right? Well, that's, to me, that's amazing. You, th you think of how do I influence the world with a crumb of bread? Just sharing it with somebody else. The royal law lived out in that moment. And that gets us to the positive side because instead of just saying, don't show favoritism, what do you do? Here he says, do something. Speak and act according to the law that gives freedom. So, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I was thinking this week, and for those of you who are artists, for the remaining few minutes, if you want to do a rendering of this, if you feel like it's worthy, by all means do it, and I'm happy to look at your rendering. I was picturing a triangle with three words. Uh, you can put whatever words you want to on there too, but basically it comes down to these three things, you know, think, speak, and act. You know, thoughts, speech, action, whatever the case may be. And it seems like when you take the whole of the Bible, the Bible's very concerned with our thoughts. What do you think? Here in this passage, he says you have evil thoughts. There's other, other passages that say renew your mind. Paul says think about things that are worthy and good and noble. I think it goes on and on to talk about take every thought captive for Christ. So our mind... What we think is very important in this triangle. This triangle kind of represents the life well lived before the face of God. Think about these things, right? So then you also have speaking or speech, how you talk. Jesus says, you know, your speech says a lot about what's happening on the inside, for sure. But there's passages, don't let any unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up. That's in the book of Ephesians. Psalm 39 one says, keep my tongue from sin. And there's a lot that James is going to say about speech upcoming too. How powerful speech is. You think, you speak, but then you act. And the whole part that James is trying to say is that your speech says one thing, but your actions do something different. You say you believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, but you're treating people differently. And that's wrong. So we need to bring these all into alignment. The Bible's a lot about our behavior. How do you walk in God's ways? What does it look like to keep the law? There's a law here that he's mentioned twice in this book already. There's something to follow. There's something to do. That's the target. Walk in the ways of this law. And until you do that, you won't know freedom. So you've got these three triangle things. But inside that triangle... You might draw a heart or something because the controlling center for all those things, Jesus makes clear, is your heart. If you have a heart of stone, then those things you think about, speak about, and do are not going to be informed by the things of God. So we need a new heart. And this is what God does, this beautiful picture of giving you a heart of flesh. So that when you have a heart of flesh and God has renewed, breathed new life into your heart, the controlling center of your being, all these other things here that maybe to you at once seemed bad and limiting now become the pathway to freedom. I want to think the things of God. I want to say things that build up 
those around me instead of bringing them down. I want to act in a way in line with God's law. And that, James says, is the pathway to freedom. Now, where one of those things doesn't exist, you're not living that whole view of shalom or peace that's so rich in the Bible. You don't care about what's happening around you in terms of action. You're not experiencing that in the way that God's designed you to. Or maybe you're saying the right things and even doing the right things, but inside your thoughts are completely amok. They're not rightly motivated. God wants all these things to be brought in harmony, and James is saying you're not living that out. And here's exactly and specifically where it is he writes to these tribes. And what about us? Where do those maybe not come together? You might think, for example, this business of judgment and mercy means that there's nobody can judge anybody about anything. You know what you end up with in that kind of scenario, right? The Bible talks about it. Go home and read the book of Judges. You can read all about it. Everybody knows what's right in their own eyes. It's a cycle of chaos. God says there is a way to live life well. I have revealed it. There's laws I've given. And when you obey and walk in those, it's the pathway to freedom. If you say nobody needs those things, it's going to end up in some form of bondage. It just does. This law is good. It can't save you in and of itself. It can't give you a new heart, but it is the pathway because it points to the one who can. And then it becomes a guide you want to walk in. See, that's the freedom. But there is also underneath it an approach for those who buy into that and say, yes, I believe this is the law of God that gives freedom. That law that you are giving to others okay, is delivered in such a way that there's mercy that leads, not judgment. I mean, thank goodness, right? We have been shown mercy. And yes, there's a law to follow, but we deliver that to others with mercy. The parable of the unmerciful servant. You know that one? This guy has this tremendous debt I've read up to $20 million, some, some ridiculous figure. This guy's reckoning accounts with his servants. The guy comes in. He says, you know what? I'm gonna, you need to sell all your property and your family to pay off this debt. And the guy begs and pleads, have mercy on me. And the person who you know, is owed all the money says, I'll have mercy on you. Go, your, your, your debt is paid. I, I won't, forget about it. And you know the story. That guy goes along and comes across one of his friends. He owes him like two bucks. Or something like that. And he says, hey, give me back my money. Yeah? You owe me money. And, and he threatens the guy. And the guy's like, oh, here's the two bucks. It's the last I got. And leaves off. And, well, guy who gave the you know, $20 million debt-free, debt merciful action, gets wind of this, calls the other guy back. It's judgment day for him now. Why couldn't you show mercy? You owed me all this money. And I said, Forget about it. And then you went out and demanded so much little of somebody else. You see, that person hadn't really experienced the mercy that had been given to him. He didn't know the mercy of God. He was demanding things of others. And there's a lot of people sitting in church pews like that as well. I mean, thank goodness mercy triumphs over judgment because if there's one person who did not deserve punishment, it was Jesus. He was perfect. And on the cross, people are doing what to him? They're thinking and bad thoughts about him. They're speaking bad things about him. They're acting in bad ways. They're crucifying him. He didn't deserve it. But in that moment, what is it that Jesus says? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine being bitten and ridiculed, scorned and mocked and saying, forgive them. 
they don't know what they're doing. There's the heart of a Savior who is merciful. And the gospel, the good news of Christ says, you want to worship and bind yourself to somebody? Why not to Jesus? He's merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment, and the great display is the cross itself, which is the gospel, which is a leveling ground. Because which one of us wouldn't be throwing the stones or doesn't? And James is saying, take a look in the mirror. You're the one showing favoritism, and you can't do that. Not if you're worshiping this merciful God. You need to lead with mercy and be drawn into the narrative that Christ is inviting you into following his ways that are good and to give freedom. You believe God was kind to you, be kind to others. Show mercy. Older siblings, please show mercy to your younger siblings. Parents to children, employers to employees especially if you're in a position of power. Lead with mercy. It's a basic kindness toward others, especially when they've wronged us. You're in a position to show mercy. Believe God was kind to you, be kind to others. You believe God's grace alone saves, don't show favoritism. Let your beliefs shape your action. Right belief and right action have to go hand in hand. And that's just basically what James, what James is saying. You know, we uh, share the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. We are reminding ourselves, this to me just demonstrates the leveling ground of the gospel. We all need the shed blood of Christ and the body that was given for us. And when we take this as one, we're saying we are baked together as one. There's no room for favoritism. God needs to remind us of that again and again. And I think this is a great time to let God's spirit maybe as you pray, just pray honestly, God, where am I showing favoritism? I didn't unpack the full definition, but you may know. And be very aware of it as you go throughout this week. And then just tell God to lead you in the way that's right. It's a good time to confess sins. And it's a good time to examine your own relationship with God. If you're not in relationship with God, if you haven't said yes to Christ, if you don't know the mercy of God, this this table is not for you. This is for those who have known it and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But as you hear this morning, that it's available to everybody. It's not based on what you do, except for your recognition of the need for Christ. And when we take this, we're saying, we need you, Jesus. Feed, we need to feed on you. We need to be consumed with your goodness in tangible form. If you've never done that, even as these elements pass you by, but you want to, I say, then do it. Tell God. Tell God your need. There's some great prayers in the bulletin to pray. And let me know if you want to take the next steps in that. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and we give him thanks. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples as we, ministering in his name, give to you. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood which is shed for many for forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink. We'll distribute first the bread. Uh, by all means, take it and hold it if you would. We'll take it as one to show not only our unity in Christ, but the fact in very living form that God does not show favoritism. First, the bread.